turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9 will be our text this morning. I want to start off with a story uh, about a gentleman named John Robert Fox. Uh, John Fox was born in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1915. He got a graduate degree through the Reserve Officer Training Corps. And so when World War II broke out, he already had the rank of second lieutenant. He served in the 92nd Infantry Division. And in the year 1944, he found himself fighting the Nazis in Italy. Uh, In December of 44, he had the job of staying behind in a small village in Tuscany, called Soma Colonia, and his job was is that as the Americans were retreating out of that village, the Nazis were advancing into it, and his job was to try to delay the Nazis as long as possible so that the American forces could withdraw and regroup and then eventually come back to attack that village. And so what he did is he found a, 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 a place in a second floor window where he could see what all the Nazis were doing around him, and then he would radio back to the artillery men to shoot at the different positions that he called out so that he could pin down the Nazis as long as possible. This worked for quite a while, but then he figured out that his best chance for all of the American troops to make it out safely was for him to order a launch of shells at his own position. And so he radioed in the strike. And the guy on the other end, the artillery officer, said back to him, because that must be a mistake. That's your position. If we fire on that position, you will be killed. And his very famous last words were, he said, fire it. There's more of them than there are of us. And so because of that artillery strike, the Americans successfully made it out, regrouped, and later took the village. When they did... They found Fox's body surrounded by about a hundred dead Nazi soldiers. Right, why would a young man sacrifice himself like that? He wasn't very old. He still had his whole life ahead of him. He had a lot left to live for. He might could have made it out if he'd ordered a different strike somewhere else. Why would he sacrifice his very life ordering that strike? Well, he did it because he loved his brothers more than he loved himself. And I like to think that I could do that, right? I like to think that if I was in war, if I had been alive back in World War II, if I had been the guy that needed to jump on a grenade to save all of my platoon mates, I like to think that maybe I could have done that. If I needed to step in front of a bullet for one of my kids or for one of my wife, I think I could do that. If I had a choice of taking something that meant my death in order that one of my family could live, I would make that choice, right? I don't think I'd make it for anybody else, Right, but I think I'd make it for one of my own family. And of course, specifically as a Christian, I want to model my life after Jesus. Okay, and what did Jesus do? He willingly laid down his life for the sake of his church, for the kingdom of God Almighty. Okay, I think that I would sacrifice my life if the cause was noble enough. Okay, and I think most of us would, right? Most of us think you could take a bullet for your family. Okay, maybe I shouldn't ask that. Some of you are looking at your spouse like, eh, I don't know, maybe not, right? But then I look at my life and the way I live every day, and I wonder, okay, it's one thing to sacrifice my life, but am I really willing to sacrifice my comfort? Am I willing to sacrifice my preferences for my family or my spouse or for people around me? Okay, am I willing to give up my rights? Am I willing to sacrifice my time or my money? 
Okay, it's easy to look at a story like the guy John Fox and say, okay, yeah, I would want to do that, right? But then do I really sacrifice in Monday through Friday kind of living for the people around me? Okay, in a sense, it is easier to say that I would take a bullet for the sake of my kids than it is to say that I would compromise my comforts or my preferences for the sake of my brothers or sisters in the kingdom of God. Is that a fair assessment? All right, today in First Corinthians 9, we're talking about sacrifice. Uh, Paul has just finished writing in chapter 8 about meat sacrificed to idols, and he says that he has a right to eat anything. But for the sake of his brothers, he will sacrifice that right. He will lay it down because by eating meat, it was leading some of the weaker Christians back into idolatry. So Paul says, better to give up my rights, right? Better to lay down my preferences for the sake of the other because his well-being is more important than my rights. And so Paul was willing to sacrifice. So now in chapter 9, uh, Paul will take the first 18 verses of this chapter to use himself as an illustration for what does it look like to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the kingdom of God. Right? We won't read all 18 verses of this, but I want you to skip down to verse 7. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Right? In other words, if they were to call you up to the military and say, hey, we want you to go fight, but we're not going to pay you. We need you to raise your own support to go fight. Okay, how many people would do that? Nobody, right? It's, it's absurd. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Okay, nobody. Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Okay, Paul is a traveling preacher, and Paul knows that when the other apostles, when the guys like Peter, James, and John, all those guys that we read about in the Gospels, when they went around preaching and working with churches, they took a salary in order to, to support themselves and their families. Okay, we know several of them were married, they had kids of their own, right? And what they did whenever they went around, they took a salary from the church in order to support their work. Okay, Paul says that that's their right. Just like a soldier isn't expected to go to war and cover his own wages, we shouldn't expect preachers to work a full-time job for free. Okay, but then Paul points to himself as an extreme rarity. Okay, Paul is like a unicorn. Okay, Paul is a preacher who knows how to have a real job as well. Right? It is what it is. Uh, Paul was a tent maker, right, which we read about in a couple places in the New Testament. He talks about how he liked to make tents for a living, which means anything that had to do with leather was in the purview of tent makers. Okay, so he made all kinds of things out of leather, and he had a pretty thriving business in some different places. This is the kind of business he could open up anywhere he went because you always need people to know how to work with leather in the ancient world. Okay, but Paul says he had a right to accept income for his work just like Peter, James, and John. But because he could work as a leather worker and support himself, he gave up that right. Okay, now, why would he do that? Why would he turn money that was his right to come to him, and why would he not take it? Why make that sacrifice? Okay, and he points to himself, and he says he did it because he loved the church. Now, 
Uh, I've heard this passage used a couple of different ways. People like to, or preachers specifically, we like to point to verse 14, okay, where it says, In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Okay, and we say, see, we have real jobs too. So pay us. And then I've heard other people uh, use this same text to say, yes, okay, but don't you want to be more like Paul? Don't you think the church is more important than you are? Okay, wouldn't it be better to just support yourself? Okay, there's heretics in every age, right? Okay, but I think if we use this text to argue about preachers' paychecks, uh, we are missing the actual point that Paul is trying to make. Okay, Paul isn't bringing all of this up to talk about paying preachers. Okay, I think the point Paul is making is he's saying he had a right, but he willingly gave up that right because he loved the Corinthians more than he loved themselves. Right, Paul is pointing to himself as an example, and he's saying, okay, see, see what I'm doing? Now, ask yourself in your own life, what am I doing to love other people? Am I willing to give up my rights? Am I willing to give up things that I should be allowed to do because I love other people more than I love myself? And I think this is hard for us in our culture, in large part because we live in a culture that highly values our personal rights. Okay, I have a right to free speech. If I want to go out and stand on the corner and yell, never Trump, or make America great again, okay, I can go do that. Okay, lots of people do it on Facebook every single day. You have a right to do it. Uh, I have a right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Okay, I have a right to religious freedom. I have a right to do what I feel is my right so long as it doesn't mess with your rights. Okay, just to get a little personal, I got pretty upset with my HOA earlier in the year whenever I had to submit to them the shingle color for a new roof on my house that had to approve the shade of gray that I was going to put on my house. I shouldn't have to do that. It's my house. I can do what I want. It's my right. Well, it's Wells Fargo's house, but that's beside the point, right? It's my house. Okay, but as a Christian, what is my right? Okay, what is my ultimate right as a Christian? Okay, and here's my one point this morning. If you want to fall asleep after this, that's fine. Here's the one thing I want us to get out of the sermon, okay? My right as a Christian is to surrender my rights for the sake of the kingdom of God Almighty. Okay, Paul's whole point with all of this is to remind us we follow a crucified Messiah, if I'm going to claim to be a Jesus follower, that means I lay down my rights and my privileges and what would be best for me for the sake of you. My right as a Christian is to surrender my rights for the kingdom of God. That makes sense? All right, so if you're taking notes, I've got three things that I think that this means for us. What does surrender look like to us? Specifically, as Paul lays it out in this passage, what does it look like for me to surrender my rights for the kingdom of God? Right, number one is this. I think surrender looks like sharing Jesus with people around me. Okay, surrender looks like sharing Jesus. Notice verse 15. He says, But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Okay? 
One of the things that surrender looks like is it looks like caring more about the salvation of people around me who don't know Jesus than I care about my own personal comforts. I was listening to a podcast on church leadership the other day, and it was a guy who's supposed to be an expert on church growth. And he quoted the statistic that according to the most recent research in America, the number of churches we have that are in decline is right around 90%. About 9 out of every 10 churches in America where people are meeting this morning and taking communion together and reading God's word together, about 90% of our churches are currently in decline. And there's different ways you can see different numbers different people come up with, but everybody agrees, regardless of what numbers you look at, that it's not good right now. Okay, increasingly, our culture is turning away from Christianity, right? And there's lots of cultural reasons for this, lots of reasons why it's harder than ever to evangelize people around us. Okay, it used to be uh, that unchurched people came to church primarily through church activities. Okay, for instance, a church could go out and have a door-knocking campaign, and half of the doors that they knocked on, those people would show up to church the next Sunday to hear what was going on. Anyone think that that would work right now? Yeah, I can actually tell you, Brian Armentrout and I went and did some door knocking not too long ago, a few months back. Uh, we didn't get the best reception in the world. You're like, why are you bothering me at my house? Right? It's a different world today. You know, it used to be that churches had tent meetings or revivals. And people from all over town would come to hear a guest preacher preach for hours on end. Um, and you could teach people the gospel. Right? Uh, we haven't done any of that here, but how many of you think that if we had a tent meeting out in the parking lot, we could get anybody to show up? Okay? Uh, we did a little bit of that when I was at the church in Texas, and the only people that would show up to hear a guest preacher preach for hours on end uh, were those of us on staff who were paid to be there and didn't really want to be there, okay? and people from churches around us that would come to hear it. We got zero unchurched people to come into our building to hear a guest preacher go on and on for hours. Okay, y'all have a hard enough time listening to me for 20 minutes, right? Amen. First amen I got today. That's good. You know, another thing that used to happen is that people had questions, right? When they went through a hard time in their life or when they wanted to talk about the meaning of life, they looked to their local pastor or preacher in their community as a source of answers and authority. My dad, who's been preaching for my whole life, can tell me about times when he was a much younger preacher that preachers used to still be held in that same regard. Those days are long gone. Here's the deal. Uh, My kids ask me questions all the time. And if I ever say to my kids, I don't know the answer to that, immediately what my kids say is, well, can you ask Siri? Okay. My point with that is that people used to look to the church for answers, but they don't anymore. Increasingly in our culture, we don't look to experts to tell us what to do or what to believe. We look up stuff ourselves. Now, uh, this is another illustration I heard on a podcast, and I thought this was really good. But the guy on the podcast was talking about how we used to have an Acts 2 model of evangelism. Okay, what I mean by that is when Peter stood up and preached on the day of Pentecost, he was preaching to a bunch of people who were already basically on third base. Okay, they all already believed in God. They all already knew what their Bible said. They all were ready to hear, oh, Jesus is Lord and I need to be baptized and put on Jesus as my Savior. Okay, preaching to people who were already on third base. And that's the model that we used to have in America. 
you could stand up and everyone already basically agreed about God. They already agreed about the authority of Scripture. They already believed that the Messiah was coming. They just needed to be shown the final step to take to put on Jesus in baptism. Okay, we have transitioned in our world, and now we are much more in touch with an Acts 17 model of ministry. Okay, you think about what happened in Acts 17. Paul is in Athens this time. Okay, and he's talking to a bunch of people who don't agree that the Bible is the word of God. They don't even agree how many gods there are, and they're not interested in hearing about a Messiah. He's got to start at a whole other place, right? If Acts 2, everyone's already on third base, okay, by the time we get to Acts 17, they don't even know we're playing baseball, right? Evangelism is hard. It is hard to teach people around us. It is increasingly more difficult to teach people around us about Jesus, and yet, in spite of that, there is still that 10% of churches that are growing. Overwhelmingly, do you know how unchurched people end up going to church and hearing about Jesus? Okay, there's not even a number two on this list because there's only one thing that actually is working. And what it is, is that it is someone who is a Christian friend invited them. They were invited to church by someone they already knew who said, hey, there's something that's going on in my life. Why don't you come with me? Overwhelmingly, it is through one-on-one -on -one contact with people that are already in some kind of relationship with them. Does that make sense? Interestingly enough, it wasn't because they want to debate with them on Facebook. Okay? It wasn't because they answered all their deepest questions about life or had every answer and were able to defend everything about their faith. They just invited someone to be a part of something that was meaningful to them. All right, this leads me to number two. Maybe. All right. Surrender not only looks like sharing Jesus with people around us, but that means it looks like finding things in common with the pagans. Okay. Notice what Paul says. This is part of the, the scripture that Tim read for us earlier, which is a very important scripture. Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Right? You notice what Paul says in this. He says, to the Jews I became like a Jew, to the Greeks he became like a Greek. Now, Paul could have had a much more peaceful life if he had just opened up his tent-making shop and done business like everyone else around him did. Okay? He could have been successful. He could have been happy. He probably would have had a wife and kids of his own if he had gone down that road. Right? Don't make waves. Just get along. But instead, what he does is he surrendered his life to live for the kingdom of God. Okay, Paul very intentionally stayed connected with the real world. He stayed connected with common workers, with Roman citizens. He was very up to date on the philosophies of his day. When he does go to Athens, he can converse very fluently with all the people there who have all sorts of different philosophies from the kingdom of God philosophy. Okay, I am very convinced that if Paul were alive today, he would be very up-to-date on his Netflix shows so that he could connect with people around him. Okay, now, am I saying that we should engage in sinful practices? No, that shouldn't have been that hard of a question. Okay? No, that's not what I'm saying. Okay, what I am saying is we cannot hide in comfort from the world and be part of God's mission at the same time. We can't do both. You know, I may have told you this before, uh, but I didn't start watching college football until I started preaching. Okay, and I very intentionally started watching college football so that I would have something to talk to people about. Okay, I very quickly figured out that nobody wanted to hear me say, hey, have you read that new book by N.T. Wright about eschatology? Nobody cared. 
Okay, but a huge percentage of people in Texas uh, were very quick to talk about spread offenses and 4-2-5 defenses, okay, which I wish Oklahoma would implement because I think we could do better on that side of the ball. But that's a different sermon. We fired our defensive coordinator. I think better days are coming. Okay, so we can all pray for that. Okay, but I always cringe uh, when I hear Christian families say things like, well, to keep out the world, we replaced our TV with a fish tank. Okay. And now your kids are weird and nobody likes you, right? <laughs> it is what it is, all right? Part of the sacrifice we are called to make is to figure out ways we can connect to unchurched people around us so that we can share with them the hope that we have in Jesus. You know, many of the best spiritual conversations that we've had with people uh, have been with people who had kids with special needs or people that had kids with medical stuff going on in their lives, right? Uh, Why? Because that's a point of contact that I can have with people who maybe don't know Jesus at all, but that's something we have in common, and that starts us in conversations about real things, right? I don't know what it is in your life that you can connect with people over, but there's something. Right, there's things that God has given you in your past experiences that allow you to connect with people that I can't connect to. Uh, and God has given you that to use as a ministry opportunity for him. But we need to have eyes to see those opportunities. We need to be looking around us. Who can I be talking to? Who is it that I'm praying for right now? Who is in my life that's a neighbor or a family member or a friend that I know from my bowling league? Whatever it is, right? God has given you relationships with people. He's given you opportunities to talk with people. And we need to be intentional about that. Okay, now, uh, like many of you, I'm more introverted than extroverted. I would much rather just sit in in a cave by myself and not have to worry about talking to other people around me. And yet part of what it means for me to surrender to the gospel of Christ is it means for me to willingly engage in conversations with people, willingly have people that I'm building relationships with for the sake of God's kingdom. Does that work? Can all of you think right now about one person that you need to be praying for and talking to about Jesus? I see two people nodding at me right now. Um, we need to do better than that. What does it look like for us to share the hope that we have with other people around us? All right, number three and finally. Surrender looks like sacrifice. Notice starting in verse 24. It says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul is using an Olympic metaphor. Uh, The Corinthian games were second only to the great Olympics themselves. They included lots of different events, running, leaping, spear throwing, boxing, wrestling, chariot racing, and my favorite, uh, racing in armor, which I think is an event they should bring back. That would be entertaining. Everyone that competed in the games was required to take an oath. They had to say, I trained for at least 10 months, and I will not resort to unfair tricks. Wish we could apply that to politics, but that's a different story. If you won at the Corinthian games, your children would receive a free education for life. You'd be exempt from all military duty for the rest of your life. And the biggest part of this, you never had to pay taxes again for the rest of your life. 
seems to be the background as Paul writes these words. Okay, everyone in Paul's day understood this metaphor. Everyone knew people who had trained and been and participated in these games. They would know that Paul is saying that following Jesus is not an activity of comfort and leisure. If you're going to follow Jesus, it means a life of sacrifice. Right? If I'm completely comfortable with my life right now, if everything in my life is comfortable, uh, Paul would tell me, then you're not living hard enough for the gospel. You're not really putting Jesus first. If your life is comfortable right now, if it's completely comfortable, you're not having to sacrifice anything, then you haven't really made Jesus Lord of your life. You cannot follow a crucified Messiah and live a life of leisure and comfort. Surrender looks like sacrifice. Again, what are we about as Christians? We are about following Jesus. We are about following a man who laid down his life for the sake of us. And the reason you and I are here is because we believe that that man, Jesus Christ, is Lord. And we've pledged to live our lives in faithful service to him. And so if you're here this morning and you've never made Jesus Lord, we would love the opportunity to talk to you more about that. Um, At this time in our service, we are going to sing an invitation song. During the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. We would love to talk with you more about whatever it is that's going on in your life. This is a time in our service where we as a church want to be here for you. Um, And before we sing that song, though, I would like to close us with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Let's stand and sing.